I just took a copy of my book down off the shelf because you told me that you'd read it and you're going to ask me questions. So I feel like even though I wrote it, I better have it next to me in case so I can re- so I can remember what I've said. Well, you know what? You only need to remember in a in a general way. I don't know if you've heard my show, but the the thing is, I have a bunch of questions. Yeah. I almost never get to all of them unless the person's boring or <laughs> non-discursive, and then you know I kind of have to push them. But usually when yeah. we're when I'm doing these um, shows, I just throw out a question the person starts talking it reminds me of something we go off on that tangent and once the tangent is through i just jump to another question i mean i just i I just try to have a nice conversation i've been doing that for i've been doing interviews for 20 i i know i read that on your website i that's been a long time that you've been doing this since 98 where i started a a pirate station in in la that the fcc finally busted twice i I read that that's pretty (laughs) (laughs) Were you divulging top secret information? Maybe that was it. No, it was just an unlicensed FM station. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Some of us are getting a reputation for you know studying really strange things, but I, I'm not sure that I'm in that category yet, but I'm, I'm getting there. Well, do you, I, I think you like it, though. I do like it. I mean, you know, I do think my voice in, like, other worlds is a bit different from Diana's voice in her book. It you is. Know? Um, you know, her book is a bit more personal in those ways, and, and my book is a little bit, I don't know what I would call it, um, it's a little bit more historical, maybe. Um, it's not as, you're not, you, you're not embedded with the subject, you've got some more detachment from it, which is, yeah. a, it's, it's, a, it's a different thing. Diana's is, is um, she's definitely embedded with some of the people yeah. in the book, which makes it yeah. compelling and interesting and, and wonderful. Because yeah. right. I was reading right. yours, and I was... One thing I thought, actually, because I I had read these people um, that you talk about in the book, some yeah. of them, Dunn and yeah. and uh, yeah. Spensky, and the one I made a comment. I actually typed out the comment about Spensky. I said, "You've actually demystified him a little bit," because I realized he was part of a continuum. He wasn't some autodidact that suddenly started spouting mystical philosophy. Right. Right. And that yeah. that yeah. was kind of fascinating to me because when you start to see a continuum, it's a little bit more. It's, yeah. It gives you some perspective. And also, I just, instead of thinking, whoa, this guy's, you know, like a Rasputin mystic, whatever, he <laughs> yeah. was more like, okay, he was just obsessed with some ideas. He'd read some cool stuff, and then he expounded upon them and expanded upon them and uh, came up with his, his system, which went on to influence other people as well. And yeah. That, that's exactly. how it works. But when you just read these people or encounter them, like Steiner or anybody like this, you encounter them, you just, you don't think of them as, as having influences. Right. A lot of them. And it's a lot of times they don't give you any hints that they have any because they kind of don't want to. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's true, too. Absolutely. Yeah. Are we, are we? I don't know if we're on yet. Are we on? About two minutes ago, I decided I think I'll cut in here because I usually have banter before I do the intro and yeah. the music and all that. OK. You know, well, the, I don't care. Yeah. Go ahead and turn it on if you want. I mean, it's totally up to you. You're, you're the you're the expert. No, the the whole extraterrestrial thing is not uh, not a viable solution to this. We we need to go f- through a turning point in the study of of this whole domain, away from ideology. We're not here to prove that we're being visited by you know aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that the um, that this that this phenomenon is um, comes from some sort of domain of pure information, 
and the fact that they can interact with us at all suggests that uh, that we inhabit the domain. It's also pure information. Are we uh, go conditioned here? Yes. in the future for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio, Radio Mysterioso? I think I will just read the um, uh, Harvard uh, Press intro. Sure. And that'll just be the standard one, but, but mostly about the book. Um, yeah. So this is, <laughs> this is straight from the, from the publisher's hype because I'm too lazy to write it. What do modern <laughs> multiverse theories and spiritualist seances have in common? Not much, it would seem. One is an elaborate scientific theory developed by the world's most talented physicists. The other is a spiritual practice widely thought of as backward the product of a mystical worldview fading under modern, the modern scientific gaze. But Chris White, my guest here today, sees striking simil- similarities. He does not claim that seances and other spiritual practices are science. Yet he points to ways that both spiritual practices and scientific speculation about multiverses and invisible dimensions are efforts to peer into the hidden elements and often, and even the extent, existential meaning of the universe. Definitely. Other Worlds, which is the book, examines how the idea that the universe has multiple invisible dimensions has inspired science fiction, fantasy novels, films, modern art, and all manner of spiritual thought reaching well beyond the realm of formal religion. Drawing on a range of international archives, uh, Chris analyzes how writers, artists, filmmakers, televangelists, which I thought was interesting, and others have used the scientific idea of invisible dimensions to make supernatural phenomena such as ghosts and miracles seem more reasonable and make spiritual beliefs possible again for themselves and others. And Chris White received his Ph.D. in Religious Studies from Harvard University, where he studied religion and culture in modern Europe and America. And he's particularly interested in religion and science, which is why I have him on the show here, because I am right now. Uh, Spirituality and unchurched religion, new religious movements, electronic media, and popular culture. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, Greg. Boy, (laughs) that that makes the book sound so great. I bet all the listeners are are rushing out to Amazon to to buy that book. Well, they should rush out to buy it because I enjoyed it thoroughly. If you read it along with um, Diana Pasolka's book, American Cosmic, and any number of uh, Jeff Kripal's book, but particularly The Flip, 
these are all yeah. addressing some of the same themes. And when I found out about your book and read it, I thought, well, Chris has to be on the show too because this is this is right down the same alley. And it's not particularly UFO stuff, although we can talk yeah. about that a little bit because yeah, it's part of this too. I mean, it's kind of a yeah. it's kind of an ineff- yeah. it's a word to to signify something ineffable that we can't quite yeah. put our finger on. Like a lot of the stuff is in your book. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, I I try to take up some of those, some of those tough questions in the book, like you know, what are the ways that fantastic scientific concepts or fantastic scientific speculation gets um, gets transformed into metaphysical speculation, and I guess what we would call even spirit spirituality, spiritual practices, religious practices, um, you know, and and as you know from looking at the book, right, there's there's even scientists in there <laughs> who are who are sort of interested in ideas like parallel universes and many worlds and higher dimensions. And, you know, I think there would be other fantastic scientific concepts that we could add into that list. But, um, you know, what are the ways in which science is getting fantastic in the 20th century, Um, you know, and inspiring people to think about spirituality or metaphysics um, across the board? So, yeah, I think I think that's kind of a surprising development in many ways you know, in the 19th century for sure. And, um, and even in the, a bit earlier in the 18th century, you know, science was linked to a project of secularization. Um, people become more scientific, they become more rational. There's this, you know, sort of the enlightenment project of becoming more reasonable and doing away with religious, religious tradition. And, and many of those enlightenment figures, scientists, social scientists, others really quite explicitly debunking, religious views um, in America and in Europe. So the story I try to tell is um, turns that upside down a little bit by saying that, well, you know, there are some some fantastic scientific concepts, especially in 20th century physics, that really have gotten people thinking in new ways about spirituality and about and about religion. So it was fun. It was fun. It's a fun story to it's a fun story to write. And, mm-hmm. you know, some some projects I think you feel kind of sad about when you're done doing all the research. <laughs> you know, you feel feel sad when they're done. And, oh, it's, you know, uh, or, or you feel relieved when they're done. But for this one, I was kind of like, well, you know, darn, I, I kind of want to keep working on this. It's an interesting topic. And uh, now the book is done. So I guess it's on to other projects. But I, I still want to work in those areas of thinking about fantastic scientific concepts and their relationship to new religious and spiritual uh, ways of practicing and believing. I have been doing this talk, um, I don't know, about for about six months now. And it's, yeah. now, it's now called, uh, It Exists, What Do We Do About It? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is an old idea from the Russian cosmists. Uh-huh. But I realized uh, while reading your book, um, most of which I read after I had put together the talk, yeah. Uh, that I was completely, not completely, but I was quite uh, misinformed about the history of science and spirit and what you were just talking about here. Because my idea, which I now realize is completely wrong, well, <laughs> completely wrong, but <laughs> somewhat wrong, somewhat wrong, was that science subsumed spirituality. Um, not subsumed yeah. it, but I tried to replace it, tried to eliminate yeah. it, actually. Yeah. Um, sometime after the Enlightenment and certainly all the way through the 19th century and most explicitly in the early 20th century. Now, yeah. I read your book and I, I realized, no, there were lots and lots of people who were scientifically trained and identified as scientists or at least rationalists who were 
quite involved in thinking about things that we would call spiritual and actually people at the time called spiritual and gave them, you know, gave them some crap for it. Yeah. But they didn't sure. do it in secret. They weren't, you know, running around, uh, you know, in, in basements or underground and, you know, and meeting in, in secret. They were talking about these things publicly. And that yeah. kind of fascinated me. And there's a whole history there starting. I think you start with, um, I mean, it, there's some before this, too, but you sort of, as a kind of a touchstone, you started with uh, Edwin Abbott's book, Flatland, yeah, from 1884. Right. So how'd you, how'd you decide on that as, as the genesis of what you wanted to, uh, as a theme of the book? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. I mean, I mean, first on the historical point, I, I do think that your, your thinking was, was right in a way. I mean, that is kind of a story that we often tell about the rise of science, that science rises up and it vanquishes, you know, superstition and magical thinking and religion and spirituality. And so, and I think that is a story that many scientists, um, would have would tell you know right up and through right up to today for sure um Mm -hmm. you know it's funny when you periodize it in certain ways the picture changes a little bit if you go all the way back to the 1600s and 1700s with the scientific revolution you know most of those thinkers were pretty religious we we would look back today and call them religious yes isaac i bring up isaac newton Newton said he came from alchemy and he never dropped the alchemy actually uh, and the Christianity. So yeah. he was, he was really, so scientific revolution was, was religious. Um, I think we could say, and then, but I do think that when you get into the, into the late 1700s and into the 1800s, something does happen. And I think the thing that happens is these scientists uh, or these, these sciences become professionalized into disciplines. They become linked to universities and university laboratories. And part of the professionalizing, um, involves, drawing the boundaries around science pretty carefully. And it's really in that period that a lot of scientists and social scientists, they start to, they start to really um, understand the boundaries of science as, as disciplines that do not contain anything that they called speculative or spiritual or supernatural. Um, and so you do see a you know, circling of the wagons um, around <laughs> scientific, scientific disciplines uh, and really um, quite explicitly keeping the supernatural out. You know, my first book was on the history of psychology and psychologists and other social scientists were famous for this. You know, they were, they were so allergic to religious ideas and considerations and in part because psychology is like other disciplines is trying to differentiate itself from, from, from theology and from older ways of thinking. Um, yeah. So, so there is a way in which I think scientists who tell stories about science do tell this story, this old story about science rises up um, <clears throat> and does away with magical thinking and superstition and religion. You know, and then Enlightenment philosophers like Comte, you know, and, and others um, since the 19th century have often talked about, well, you know, a long time ago, human beings were superstitious and magical and religious. And then over time, there's been this evolution, this kind of cognitive evolution. And now, <clears throat> thanks to the rise of science, we've realized that religion is sort of a bad theory or an erroneous theory of how the world works. And that science is the replacement theory that's much more accurate. So I do think people still have that narrative. Um, but you're right that it, you're right. In my book, I try to complicate that and say, well, wait a minute. Um, you know, even people who believe in that narrative of secularization and rise of science, many of them actually had, you know, secret supernaturalist beliefs, or many of them actually were 
uh, doing different things like conducting seances, um, for instance, and doing right. other things. So actually I actually bring that was, up in the talk that the, the spiritualist movement actually pulled some of those people back because they saw things that were happening and they thought, well, yeah. we ought to take a look at this. I mean, the, the, the society, uh, society for Psychical Research had a lot of important thinkers yeah. at the time that's, that founded it. Right, right, exactly. And then, I mean, and then, you know, with my book, I get into this issue of, you know, starting with Flatland. You mentioned Flatland, and then there's right. Hinton, and there's other sort of quote unquote hyperspace philosophers and mathematicians. Yeah, I want to talk about Hinton a little bit too, but go ahead. Yeah. And mathematicians who start to think about this idea that there might be a, a fourth dimension, a fourth spatial dimension, or a fifth spatial dimension. Um, and even use that within the context of their linear algebraic equations. Um, but, you know, it doesn't take long for them to think, you know, well, you know, what if, you know, what if, um, you know, this is not a spatial dimension that we can perceive apparently, but what if it really exists, you know, yeah, well, and we can think about and, it and, and yeah. And, and, and Edwin Abbott was sort of in that. Right. Exactly. And, Sorry. You know, Abbott, Abbott was in that category too. I mean, I think, Abbott's flat one was 1884. So this is really a moment when scientists were professionalizing their disciplines, were creating disciplines in, in science and in social science. And it was really a moment of, uh, um, you know, scientific prestige, I think, when, uh, you know, science really became the authoritative discourse, you know, that people turned to. And th I think that was really happening in the second half of the 19th century. So, so Abbott was caught in the middle of that. He was a principal of a, of the city of London school, headmaster of the city of London school. And he was, but he was conversant with science and math and, um, and humanities as well. He was a smart person. Um, and so, and, and he was also an Anglican priest, but he was an Anglican priest who like many of his colleagues, was wrestling with uh, what it means to believe in traditional Christian notions yeah. in, an, in, an era, in an era of science. So <laughs> he got interested in the idea that— And social uh, upheaval, too, as you point out in your book. And Exactly. So a lot of things are kind of changing. Um, it's a disorienting time, and you know, Abbott struggled you know, to kind of stay in, in the ministry, in the priesthood, he, he did stay there, but he, his beliefs were kind of challenged. Um, but he, he ends up doing what a lot of people did, which is saying, well, hey, maybe we can come up with a more rational and scientific way of thinking and talking about Christianity. Or maybe we can come up with a more scientific way of thinking about religion. And I think for him and many others, it was a way of building credibility you know, into religious views. So he writes Flatland, and I'm sure folks that listen to your, your podcast um, – you know, know about Flatland, but it's, it, it's kind of this classic, you know, this sci-fi classic that he wrote. Yeah. Yes. Please a, describe. <laughs> I, yeah. I read it too, but many years ago, like probably. Yeah. Well, it's this, ago. it's this kind of classic book. And that's the reason I started with it is it, you know, of all of the, you know, science fictional narratives about uh, other dimensional worlds, this, this narrative really has a kind of amazing cultural power in life. I mean, it, he wrote, he wrote this book in 1884, but it's still in print and languages all over the world. Um, you know, I think it's it's been translated into something like 35 different languages. It's still in print. There's been several films uh, that have been made out of it, and so it really, you know, and there's many sequels that I that I talk about in the book. Right. Other people who wrote sequels to it. So it really has had a kind of um, 
an imaginative power in, in many cultures. And so, but the, but the story is, is very clever and interesting. I mean, it's a, he writes a story, not about a world that has extra dimensions, but a world that has fewer dimensions. He writes this story about a two dimensional world, a, a world with two spatial directions or dimensions. So this would be a flat world, like a world that would be spread out on the flat surface of, of your desk. And the characters or the, the beings who live in that world are all two-dimensional uh, shapes. You know, there are squares and there are circles and there are triangles. Um, and they all kind of slide around with their two dimensions in their flat, in their flat world. Um, and the, you know, the climax of the story is when the main character, who's a square, encounters a being from a higher dimensional world. So there's a, a three-dimensional sphere or globe actually comes down into the flat plane of Flatland and inserts itself into this world and sort of appears to Flatlanders out of nowhere. And it's sort of a disembodied voice and speaking and the sphere speaks directly to the, the flat square. And the sphere says, you know what? There's another direction um, or dimension to reality that you can't perceive. Um, and, uh, they have a, a dialogue there sort of in the middle of the book between this 3D sphere and the two-dimensional flat square. And the flat square says, this is impossible, I don't believe it. And in their flat world, it sort of is heterodoxy to uh, even talk about or consider mm -hmm. what it might be like to have a, a third direction to reality. So the, the sphere is, gets frustrated and ends up reaching um, down onto the flat plane of flatland and pulling the square off of the off of the surface of his world and up into three-dimensional space. <laughs> and at that point, the square is able to look down on the flat plane of Flatland and see everything laid out in front of him. And so he has a kind of a transcendent vision. He has a, it's really kind of a religious moment, right? A, a moment of uh, see, seeing things in a, in a whole new way and seeing all, all things at once. And so he, he acquires a kind of higher dimensional or transcendent vantage point. And then, and then he goes back to his flat world and he starts to tell people and he's, uh, he's sort of shunned by his family and friends and relations. And he ends up blurting out that there might be a third spatial dimension to reality at a meeting and he gets thrown in jail. And, um, you know, so he becomes a kind of a prophet, um, who's persecuted, uh, with this kind of message that there might be. Um, a realm of existence or a direction to reality that 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 they can't perceive, and he ends the book uh, still in jail, um, kind of on a despairing, you know, <laughs> kind, of a, kind of a despairing moment where he's sort of like, you know, maybe I've I've written this book so that someone out there in Spaceland might one day read it and uh, be able to kind of have what does he say? I can't remember his exact his exact words, but basically have an expanded imagination. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's clever because uh, that's what Abbott, the author, is, is after, right? He, he's after kind of a, um, you know, he's after a moment in his readers where he could get them to say, you know what, wait a minute, you know, yes. we can only see our... Yeah. our Let's scale this up, center. you know. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. What, what if it scaled up and what if there, were, there was a fourth spatial direction to reality that we couldn't perceive, right? Um, is it possible... And I think that's what Abbott was trying to do. He's trying to use mathematical and geometrical ideas about higher spatial um, notions to, to get people thinking about, you know, um, what would we say, uh, non-empirical realities. I mean, realities that we can't see or touch or perceive, 
but nevertheless might exist. Um, yeah. So he's, he's importing, a, importing a little bit of math and science in order to make maybe more plausible a basic religious or spiritual view, which is, you know, there are, there are unempirical realities uh, or spaces or beings to, to reality, right? These, yeah. are, these are realities that we can't, apparently we can't perceive. So in this way, he's making a comment, one, he's almost, and I think you actually made this point in the book and with a few of these people, they're yeah. reinforcing their religious convictions with a theoretical, possibly scientific idea. For sure. Yeah. And that was yeah. the you know, and that was the impetus behind a lot of these uh, people because they had, um, including Hinton, I believe, had a spiritual crisis, yeah, uh, exactly. a crisis of belief, and he thought, well, how do I reconcile not believing in God or not believing in what the church told me or whatever? Um, yeah, he, he was uh, British, right? Yeah, they both were. Yeah, yeah. And how do I? And you said that Hinton actually, and we can talk about Hinton. I would love to. Um, yeah. He actually got so freaked out by it that he couldn't talk for a while. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's you know, sometimes sometimes people who study this period of history in in England and in America, the you know, the Victorian period, you know, what is it, eighteen thirty to, to nineteen hundred, but mm-hmm. sometimes pe- people talk about the crisis of faith, you know, the Victorian crisis of faith. Um, you know, and it's become a, a trope, but it, it really is true. I mean, a lot of these people were confronted by the rise of new sciences and new scientific perspectives. Um, and as we said earlier, sort of enlightenment perspectives on reason and rationality and critiquing tradition and critiquing religion. So there really was a, a Victorian crisis of faith. And, you know, and Abbott was a part of that, you know, mm-hmm. with his, his wrestling with Christianity. And then this other character I talk about in chapter two, a mathematician named Charles Howard Hinton. Um, he, he also wrestled with that as well. And, and yeah, I start out chapter two by talking about his really crippling depression, where he he was paralyzed. He became paralyzed um, yeah. by by these by these ideas. Um, and and his his um, you know I think his paralysis was even deeper than Abbott's. I mean, I think he fell into a kind of a philosophical pessimism, and he talked about the ways that you know a kind of a thoroughgoing skepticism had taken away not just his religious views, but all of his views about reality, right, which is is a really paralyzing idea when you think about it. Like, you know, I don't know if I can trust anything that I even see or touch. I don't know if I really know um, the things that I think that I know. I mean, how can I know? How can I be sure of anything? How can I be sure not just of religion or metaphysics, but even of questions about how to act in basic ways in the world and how to even get up in the get up out of bed in the morning? Um, so he he really did have a crisis and. He had to Hinton had to kind of rebuild, you know, his his sense of self and his sense of competency in the world, and from scratch, he ends up actually. from scratch exactly. You know, and it's not you know that's kind of an also an old philosophical um, idea, right? Some some of us might think of like Descartes. You know, I mean, you go through a process of doubting everything, um, and then you end up thinking about, well, is there something that I absolutely cannot doubt that could that could form the bedrock? Of, of, of a new way of being in the world, right? A new, more certain way of acting um, and being in the world, right? And and Descartes yeah, sounds, had his, his way of doing that, and and Hinton and, and other mathematicians had their way of doing it, and, yeah, and Hinton's way of doing it was more math, point to something math. metaphysical. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. Um, and so Hinton, being a mathematician, kind of turned more 
towards mathematics as a kind of a language that is certain, you know, to him is kind of a certain language um, that you could ground a lot of things in. And he developed this system of cubes, a very elaborate system of three-dimensional cubes that were all yeah. labeled. And yeah. he would rearrange these. It was almost like, a, to me, I looked at it, and it's like um, what uh, <laughs> our, our, our colleague there, Dave Metcalf, was, when he talked about uh, Volvels, um, uh-huh. which were basically spiritual slide rules. And that's kind yeah. of how I see um, when you talked about Charles Hinton's work, that's what it looks like to me. It looks like some kind of metaphysical slide rule that he could use to explain reasons for all kinds of things that he couldn't explain with religion. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think it's, I think it's hard to imagine, you know, this kind of how he could have set up um, a new philosophy of life on mathematical and geometrical concepts, right? I mean, I try to explain it, you know, as best I can in the book, but, but there is a certain way in which Hinton is just quirky, you know? I mean, yeah. he's, I mean, I, you know, he had this system of 27 cubes, which is like a Rubik's cube, because you, you stack up the 27 cubes into a three by three by three, you know, a Rubik's cube. And he, t- you know, there's, there's, you know, there's narratives that I read about where he takes these to people like the American philosopher, William James and others. And, you know, William James is like, I don't know what to do with these, you know, I mean, yeah. and Hinton gave him instructions and, you know, do this and you, you put them like you stack them up like this and then you memorize, you know, all of the elements in the, in all of the cubes, right. Which and he all did. The, yeah. Which Hinton did. But James was like, I can't do what, you know, I can't do that. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, and, um, you know, and you do, there are stories about these, you know, Hinton's cubes, you know, you hear different people, oh, they'll, they'll make you crazy. And, um, certain people said that they could do it. And, um, so Hinton had a whole, you know, pedagogy of these cubes and there, there were certain people, I don't know. I think you have to have a certain kind of mind, right? Mm-hmm. And I think Hinton was, I think Hinton was kind of a genius in some ways. Um, and his father was kind of a genius. So I think he was, he was able to do it, but I mean, maybe I can just explain quickly, like, you know, the, the short version of what he was doing. But I mean, I think basically what he was trying to do with the cubes is he would, he would label all, you know, edges and faces and all the elements of all of these 27 cubes and he would stack them up and then, yeah. And then he would visualize all of that in one, he would visualize the Rubik's cube in that, in that situation. And then he would take the whole thing and then he would rotate it. Um, and then he would think, okay, now where are all the elements um, of, of that cube? Which is really a, a pretty impossible thing to do, but it's it's a really complicated visualization exercise. Um, yeah. So, and I I think he was doing it in order to achieve, <clears throat> you know, what would we say a, a transcendent form of vision. You know, I think that, you know, just like the the square, who you know when the sphere peeled him up off of his flat world. He had a transcendent vision. What was he able to do? Well, when you're in a higher dimensional space, you're able to look down um, at a lower dimensional space and see all elements of it at the same time. So when the square lived in Flatland, he would be, you know, floating along in Flatland and he would come up to where he lives. And all he would see um, in the horizon of his Flatland world would be just lines. Lines, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. But when you when you're peeled up into three dimensional space, now what do you see? Well, you can actually see everything you can see inside of everyone's houses, two dimensional houses. You can see inside of everyone's bodies. Right. Which you can't see when you live in the in the flatland world, because, you know, like if a flatlander is a circle, for instance. Right. If you rise up above that 
flat plane and you look down, you can see inside that circular body. Mm-hmm. So I think Hinton was trying to do the same thing with the cubes. He was trying to develop a transcendent form of vision. So through which he could, when looking at a cube, actually see all sides and elements of it at the same time, like someone would see if someone were in a fourth dimensional space. So does that make sense? Yes, it does. And I was just okay. about to say, oh, my God, okay. he was an early cubist. And that's <laughs> that's a joke and not a joke at the same time. <laughs> right. Exactly. I mean, you know, from looking at my book that in there, I do talk about cubism and I talk about art just a little bit. Um, you know, that was another thing that was hard to do. Right. Because I'm not, not really trained in art history. But 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 that's the only idea... thing I am trained in. So that part of the book actually fascinated me. Oh, there you go. <laughs> There you go. So, yeah, this idea of, you know, there being a four-dimensional cube, also called a hypercube or a tesseract, this idea fascinated cubists as well. Um, and I have a whole chapter in there on Max Weber, right. this um, Russian-American um, Jewish artist who develops cubist art, quote, the quote-unquote first cubist in America, you know. But he was very interested in these mathematical ideas as well. And he also had a kind of a Hintonian idea that, you know, um, if we think in terms of dimensions, maybe these geometrical ideas can help us see um, reality in a new way. And maybe we can see beyond the outer surfaces of reality mm-hmm. and in, into even the spiritual elements of reality or the absolute. Yeah. He um, wanted the paintings to be the sphere that pulls the flatlander out. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Right. And he saw that. And I, I also, th- I don't know if you mentioned this or uh, got into it in the uh, in the text. I think you did mention that later he became more. Uh, he, he went back to his Jewish roots and would yeah. his paintings were had um, Jewish theological themes. Yeah. But the thing is that if you look at um, uh, and his parents were, I, I guess you said were um, Orthodox Jews. Yeah, they were. They were more Orthodox. Yeah, I mean they were just traditional, right? Because they because the family um, was in Russia. And this was a time of great, you know, persecutions of the Jews. Um, so they leave Russia and end up in America. And a lot, a lot of Jews who are leaving those types of situations in that period, right, are, are more traditional, right? They're going to be more traditional. Right. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, the fact that he was looking at these things, there's a um, – he, if he listened when he was in school when he was a kid, there's a very heavy grounding in this kind of thought in Jewish mysticism, which I don't know if they got into that that much when he was a kid. Huh. I guess I guess they only teach it to you when you get to a certain age. Probably not, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but maybe he found out later that some the, a lot of the ideas he was dealing with were yeah. uh, were um, addressed in, um, in, in, in Kabbalah and things like that. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't remember coming across, you know, anything that he wrote about you know, Kabbalah or Jewish mysticism. I mean, he, what he does is he actually talks an awful lot about the ways that, you know, being from a more traditionally Jewish background hindered him uh, in terms of his art, you know, because there's this, at least his parents and his rabbis were pretty against, um, you know, this whole second commandment about creating images and so on. So Yeah, and he had pretty, to hide them from his parents and then he had to move right. out and live with uh, other, I think he said he lived, <laughs> yeah. with, he lived with Alfred Steiglitz for a while or something like yeah. that. Briefly, exactly, exactly. So, <laughs> so, 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 right. So he, he, you know, his narrative about his about his life includes that, you know, that there was this kind of Jewish prohibition against um, against this kind of stuff, and that made it harder for him. But, but yeah, he does. You know, later in his life, as you say, he it's kind of interesting because he he ends up incorporating, kind of going back to a less abstract style 
and incorporating Jewish themes and Jewish characters in a more figurative styles, but but not losing the geometric um, right. elements either, and kind of kind of combining. And and I guess I think that's a part of the story I'm trying to tell too. It's 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 um, you know it's not scientific ideas uh, pushing aside religious ideas all the time. It, it's also scientific ideas maybe forcing religious people to rethink, um, to rethink tradition and to rethink religion. And you see that with Abbott, um, maybe less so with Hinton, who I think was more, more radical. And, um, and some of the other figures became more radical and kind of leaving Christianity or Judaism. But, but Max, Max Weber was interesting because he kind of used it to turn back to tradition and then rethink tradition, you know, use, use the geometry to, to rethink Judaism. Yeah, and to, to try to push it in an area that he thought was, you know, yeah. would uh, would uh, change 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 things, and and you use the yeah. word evolve too because uh, that was a big concept in the nineteenth century because of Darwin. So everybody yeah. was evolving everything. We still live with that idea, right? Exactly, exactly. So making um, you know religious or spiritual statements um, or and propositions more modern and more scientific, I think. Well, you know, most of the people I talk about in the book are are into that for sure, and I, I, mean, I think I think that's sort of the moment that we're still in. You know, I mean, in, in a way, you know, there is some history in the book, but I think it's also very contemporary in that way because I think that people still, people in America today, um, still do rely on scientific discourses, um, you know, as the authoritative discourses for understanding the world, and they still do rely on these kind of scientific concepts, even, even when they're doing religious things, you know, mm-hmm. um, even when they're, even when they're, um, developing their, their views of the world or their views of a meaningful world, or as yeah. I talk about in the book, when they're, when they're borrowing fantastic scientific concepts too. Yeah. Well, it's not out of place for somebody to go to church and the, you know, the, the, the minister gets up and says, I take my text today from what? the Copenhagen interpretation or something like that and, and start talking about how this Stephen is Hawking. Huh? Yeah. yeah. Stephen Hawking. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and how, you know, and it, it's, it still does that. It still bolsters what yeah. they, you know, or they used it to try and bolster what they, they see as um, the, you know, as, um, as uh, supporting doctrine. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure, and there's another there's another whole question here, which is, you know, is that legitimate? Yeah, right? and that's, we, that's we could the ask next question. We, we could ask that question. I mean, that's a tough question, right? It where is. you say, where you say, well, is it legitimate to um, uh, to to borrow the idea that the universe might have invisible spaces or imperceptible spaces? Is it legitimate to take that and then say, therefore, um, you know, why not um, use that idea to to believe in heaven or to talk about heaven mm-hmm. uh, in, in a more scientific way. And, you know, in my book, I have s- secular scientists who are pushing back and saying, you know, it's really not legitimate for you to, <laughs> you know, we're not actually talking about heavenly spaces here. We're talking about other kinds of spaces. So there's a, <laughs> there's um there are arguments in the book about that, right? Between people who are more secular and people who are more spiritual, um, you know, can can we use scientific ideas in these ways? And we still have these these arguments today. I mean, you know, Deepak Chopra or Wayne Dyer or some, some other uh, or Oprah um, are, is talking about quantum healing or quantum spirituality, and then you're going to have 
you know, you're going to have scientists who weigh in and say, wait a minute, you know, rolling their eyes, yeah, rolling their eyes. Exactly. And saying, you really can't, um, you can't do that. That's not a responsible way to use these concepts. Um, I think it's a really hard, that's a really hard one. I don't, I mean, I will say that in the book, you know, I'm, I'm really not about judging which appropriations are, are good and which ones are bad which ones are legitimate and which no, ones are it, it's more of making people aware of a lot of these you know a lot of this th- these yeah. pieces of history i was not aware of what's really funny is you mentioned that right now about uh, uh, spirit, uh, spiritual disciplines appropriating scientific concepts that's not yeah. new what i thought was really funny was there was there were people that were complaining about this in the late 19th century um, yeah, right. You brought up a, what's right. his name, Carl Zollner, Frederick Zollner, who was yeah. an astrophysicist, yeah. but he 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 um, he tried to equate some of what uh, he was finding out about spiritualism with his astrophysics, <laughs> and it pissed a lot of his colleagues off. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So you're right. It, it does. It is kind of. It is a contemporary story because we we have those arguments today, and but they've been going on for over a hundred years. And yeah, Zollner was a you know well-regarded, you know, physicist, astrophysicist, um, who then gets interested in these same kind of ideas about there being higher dimensional spaces that we can't perceive. And he, he starts conducting seances, you know, he has mediums come in and mediums start to start to get him to believe that actually they are working through higher dimensional spaces in order to do these kind of fantastic things that they're doing in the context of sciences. And he even brings in his scientific colleagues, like, um, you know, a number of people, psychologists and physicists and others. Um, and there, there were a series of really quite fascinating, um, you know, arguments in that period about, you know, this guy is like senile, this guy, you know, this guy is, this guy is totally off of his rocker, you know, and there was a, there were commissions and there were groups of people who condemned, you know, Zollner. And so there was absolutely a, a pretty, pretty vigorous debate about this um, back then. It happened with the um, theosophists were borrowing things from, from mathematicians and physicists and that pissed the mathematicians and physicists off. Um, yeah. So absolutely. Th- that was yeah. <laughs> so amazing to me that that had been going on. I just I didn't know that that argument had that that had been an issue within our lifetimes. But that's just uh, tem- yeah. temporal chauvinism or something. Yeah. Another section I thought was kind of amazing was about um, W. E. B. Du Bois. Oh yeah, and taking yeah, classes right. with a uh, class with William James at Harvard, <laughs> and then he took that yeah. fourth dimensional idea and spoke about race. And, yeah, and absolutely. I think his idea was more was more not um, at least the way you explained it was his idea was more if we can all get into that fourth dimensional space, every all races and look and see what we're doing, we can see what we're doing wrong. Yeah, at yeah, least get right. that perspective so, because then you would have a perspective of the other person's experience. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that there, you know, is starting with Abbott and Hinton, there is a kind of a social dimension to to these projects. You know, there's a way in which... Oh, and Hinton you know, they, was like a women's rights champion, you said, too, which was kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, his father was and he was, but, you know, they had a pr- pretty particular way of thinking about that. Like, practicing bigamy was was okay. on the... Okay, you know? they, so, they thought so like, they were. Well, they wanted, they probably wanted <laughs> yeah. women's suffrage and things like that. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. But only exactly. to a certain yeah. point. To them, it was very radical, though. It was, it was. And, you know, and his father, you know, 
practiced bigamy, and he was convicted. Hinton himself, the mathematician, was convicted for having two wives and thrown in jail for a time. And so he actually has a whole there's a whole kind of wild, interesting sexual part of <laughs> part of that chapter too that that goes on. But but yeah, yeah I mean, people Hinton and others, um, and going all the way through to a number of different social reformers. You mentioned uh, you mentioned W. E. Du Bois, but yeah. a number of social reformers have this idea that, well, wow, I mean, if if the, if it's possible to see reality from a higher vantage point, um, if it's possible to see reality from a transcendent vantage point, I wonder if it's possible to <clears throat> to rethink, um, you know, the social order in new ways. And you know, Du Bois got interested in this for a while. He never really he didn't really run with it. I mean, he he uh, I talk in there about a. A, a short work of fiction that he was working on called *A Vacation Unique* that we have mm. only in like a manuscript, or we have only in a manuscript form. But he's in the manuscript, he's clearly drawing from Flatland, and I think from Hinton as well. And we know that uh, Du Bois knew about um, you know the fourth dimensional theory, and um, because we know that he he read these books, and we know that William James talked about Hinton, and as I said earlier, William James knew Hinton. Right. Uh, so, so Du Bois knew about it and he, yeah, he was interested in the idea of, you know, can you, can you reimagine the color line and can you, can you reimagine race if you could, if you could imagine or see it from a higher dimensional vantage point. And he, he kind of puts that into his, into this story that he writes, but never finishes. And then he, he kind of leaves it at that. He doesn't really go into it, but a number of other people, (coughs) excuse me, who I talk about in the book you know, take up this idea as well. I mean, there are, there are reformers in, in Europe, <clears throat> excuse me, there are reformers in Russia, you know, others want to use this idea to develop a new transcendent philosophy, right? Um, you know, there, there's a politics, um, that come with some of these ideas. Yeah. M- Malevich was in there, which I thought was totally fascinating too, because from art history, yeah. all I know about him is, oh, well, this is just the breakdown of, you know, uh, yeah. figural art and what's the, what, you know, what does art do? What do, what do we look at? How do we see form? How do we, but no, he took it way beyond that. And I didn't yeah. know about this because they didn't teach this in art history. They didn't <laughs> yeah, talk exactly. about the political and the metaphysical aspects of his yeah. art. Yeah, I think so. I mean, when you're, when you, and when you're talking about like the Russian avant-garde and, you know, a number of people, we, we were talking earlier uh, about Ospensky and, you know, there's, there's a number of people who are, you know, in that society, certainly rethink, rethinking culture, but also rethinking politics. And yeah. so I think it all is, it's all kind of connected there to, to a sort of a, a society in transition when you're talking about Russia and, um, but it comes out in other places as well. I mean, I, I found, um, you know, there, there were place there were people who were using higher dimensional ideas or hyperspace ideas to think about gender in new ways. I, in chapter, oh, yeah. what is I think in chapter seven, I talk about Madeline LaEngle, you know, the American writer who wrote A Wrinkle in Time and, and many other books. Um, mm-hmm. But she actually, you know, she kind of embraces this idea of a tesseract, which is a higher fourth dimensional cube. Um, and she talks about tessering in there and she, she reads, uh, popular science. She's reading sort of popularizations of Einstein and she's, she's reading popularizations of higher dimensional mathematics. And, um, there's a couple different things she's reading, but she's using these ideas to, to not just think about spiritual concepts and the supernatural, but also to kind of rethink the place of women in society. And, um, so she, I think has a kind of a new vision for, 
for gender, right? Um, and she is pretty focused on, you know, giving her female characters, especially Meg, you know, in A Wrinkle in Time, giving her female characters a full humanity, right? Rather than the really kind of limited humanity women have in science fiction and fantasy up to that time. You know, I mean, if you if you look at sci-fi, you know, or even comic books or, um, you know, up until 1960, I mean, it really is, you know, it's a genre that's written by and for men and boys, you know, and women, female characters are really very one dimensional, you yeah, know, they're either um, on the cover of the book and nowhere else, or they're in trouble. Yeah. And in scantily, danger scantily or, clad. Exactly. You know, yeah. Have to be rescued or whatever. They're never <clears> actually that they're never actually heroes on their own. And, uh, Langle tried yeah. to change that. And yeah. I knew that about her, but I didn't know that that's where that came from. Yeah. So she was interested in using some of those ideas to, to rethink tradition. And I think to rethink gender and certainly to rethink Christianity. I mean, she, you know, she leaves Christianity and then she gets a kind of a re-enchanted sensibility through reading popular science, you know, um, and, uh, you know, thinking about the universe with the, with a sense of awe and a sense of wonder that I think comes through in, in many of her books. Um, and, and also, you know, this idea of, um, you know, dimensional traveling and traveling in different spaces and times. She incorporates all that stuff and, um, and she's certainly not alone in that. I think a lot of science fiction writers use those concepts, right? And, and a lot of science fiction <clears throat> writers are interested, actually, in having a sense of awe and wonder uh, that we might call spiritual, you know? Um, I was, who was I reading? I was reading someone recently. I think it was, uh, I think it was this academic named Peter Pels, but talking about the ways in which science fiction and, you know, between 1940 and 1980, science fiction, actually this kind of um, ostensibly secular carrier of religious and spiritual messages for all of that time, you know. So it's kind of an interesting argument about, hmm. you know, in, in what is really kind of a secular time, where are the religious or spiritual reflections going well they they're ending up in unexpected places like in science fiction and i i don't know i like that i think you really see that i think you see a lot of themes about kind of transcendence and beyond spaces and and, and narratives about people yeah trying to trans transcend the secular limits of of the mind and of the body and of history and human nature and they're doing it through science fiction yeah i was going to bring up phil Ki phil dick but he didn't yeah. have to. He didn't have to speculate about it. He went through it. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's very true. He didn't true. go yeah, read. He... You know, he didn't go read uh, all these people. And and I wanted to actually discuss this a little about John Donne's yeah. uh, experience and how oh, he yeah. influenced H.G. Wells, C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, and Langle. Yeah. And um, you know how how that tradition came through because that's all the science fiction writers you read now have read those people. Exactly. And I don't think all of them, a lot of them know where some of their basic ideas came from. And they, uh, I mean, they go, probably goes back to Hinton, but also yeah. very importantly, uh, John Donne, who, um, I can't remember. In, ch in, in chapter six, uh, the yeah. chapter about uh, dreams and yeah. yeah. But also yeah, um, I mean, it's in time loops too. Um, Eric Wargo's book, he talks about Donne quite a bit too, and a little bit Absolutely. different, a little bit different uh, context than you do, but yeah. Um, maybe, yeah. maybe you could, uh, describe his, his, what happened to him, you know, his precognitive stuff and how that became yeah. a real leap motif with, with all these writers later. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're right. That I mean, that's really, you know, that's chapter six about done. I, I really enjoy that chapter a lot. And it's like you say, it's really important because it, you know, it does set up a lot of later thinking about higher dimensions and dreams. Um, so actually, whenever whenever I'm talking to someone about my book, I'm like, yeah, you really should go read chapter six, <laughs> especially when they get stuck in chapter two or no chapter um Chapter four or five, which is on modern art, you know, it's like I think I think people put but the I book love down. But the modern art like, chapter. <laughs> chapters. That's good. That's that's why I really appreciate you, Greg. Thank you. So at least, at least one one person likes the chapter on modern I, art. But, um, yeah, I, you know, I'm I'm predisposed. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. You're corrupted. But the but yeah. So I mean, the Dunn stuff is really interesting. So Dunn, you know, Dunn is this. He's an aeronautical engineer in the UK. Um, he's involved in designing some of the early, you know, monoplanes and biplanes, um, some of the earliest planes that were used by the by the British military. Um, so he's he's doing that kind of thing, and then he he goes off to combat and fighting in South Africa in the Second Boer War in like 1901, 1902, and he's in combat and he starts to have some some odd experiences. Right, he starts to have these terrifying nightmares, and he starts to have these dreams. Um, really most of them are nightmares i guess but um yeah they're about seems, disasters mostly yeah they're about disasters that then happen that seem to happen in real life so he you know he starts to have dreams and he starts to kind of write them down um you know and usually what happens is he he has a dream and it is it is often about a disaster like a train crash or or a plane crash right he was an aeronautical engineer so he had some dreams which were about friends of his at the balloon factory you know, testing planes and crashing and dying. So he had some of those, um, but he'd have the dream. And then the next morning or the day after that, or the day after that, he would open up the newspaper and he would see the story about what he dreamed. So that, that's actually how it, how it usually happened for him. And he writes about one dream in particular, um, in detail that I, that I write about in my book too, which is, you know, he's having a nightmare. He's on an Island and, for the most part, people on the island are going about their business, but he can tell that something is wrong on the island. Everyone is speaking French on the island, and he he notices that you know that gases are venting out of the ground, and there's there's some rumbling um, on the ground, and he's getting kind of panicked, and he's trying to tell people that people need to get off the island, and he knows this um, somehow. He knows this, or or um, or they're all going to die, and mm-hmm. he he kind of wakes up pleading with. Um, the the local police to get people mobilized and get people off of the island and he wakes up and then the next day he sees this newspaper article which is you know the island of martinique a couple towns in the island of martinique are destroyed by this um you know what was the 20th century's most destructive volcanic eruption actually right um so so he he starts to wonder uh, he starts to wonder about this. You know, he keeps starts keeping a dream journal. He starts to wonder: Is it how, how could it be possible? You know that that someone could dream something and then it could happen. And so he actually, you know, I, I write his story in the chapter, but he actually develops higher dimensional um, theories about how the dreaming self could somehow or other, you know, lift itself up off of our three-dimensional world like the flat square yeah. and see yeah. and see see the, the whole world laid out before it and maybe maybe even peek into a future moment so he he uses some einstein relativity and he uses some 
Hinton's ideas um, about about um, higher dimensions, and so he develops this whole theory about you know that there might be ways for the the sleeping consciousness to lift up off of um, our dimensional world and, and peek into future times. So it's kind of complicated. You know, if you if you go pick up his 1927 book, An Experiment with Time, you, you'd be like, what? You know, his book is like, it's really complicated. And it's like, you know, the, the part where he has his dreams is pretty interesting and pretty clear. But then he, he then he goes into relativity and he goes into, yeah. you know, so, a little bit of quantum mechanics <laughs> and, you know, a little bit of uh, Charles Hinton thrown in there. And it's it's yeah, pretty yeah. hard to, like, figure out what he's doing. And you know, reviews, you know, reviews written at the time were, were sort of like, you know, also like, well, we couldn't really figure out what he's talking about. here. But <laughs> I think they also complained about the same thing we were talking about before, which was taking scientific ideas and throwing them as they thought willy nilly into the pot with other things. Yeah. Without exactly. a full understanding of the implications of those theories. Exactly. I mean, you know, to be fair to his story, what I would say is that, you know, if you, if you want to believe John Donne, you know, to, you know, he, he has a set of experiences, which I think people do legitimately have. I think people legitimately have, um, frightening and, um, startling, you know, par- <laughs> startling and paradigm shifting experiences like people hear a dead ancestor or a dead relative, right. you know, talk to them or they see a ghost or, they have a dream that does predict the future. I think these things do happen to people. And I think when they happen to people, people seek for the people seek answers and reasons. And I think, you know, and I think he did that, you know, and later in his, in life towards the very end of his life, actually, I talk about this towards the end of the chapter, but at the very end of his life, he kind of came out actually with, you know, even more personal detail about his life. And he, in a book that is, was published after he died, his wife published it. Right. It turns out that he had what he called intrusions, which we, we'd basically call hearing voices and having visions throughout his life. So, you know, he didn't talk about this at all in all of his earlier books about, yeah. um, you know, about higher dimensions or about dreaming and so on. He probably he thought it would about, mess up his message and that was too much absolutely. beyond the pale for most people, whereas what he was absolutely. talking about was only slightly beyond the pale. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Totally. But it turns out that he, you know, he heard voices and he even said that, you know, the voices would come to him and tell him, uh, among other things, to to tell the story and try to understand better these dream, these uncanny dreams that he had. Mm. So he it turns out he had a, kind of a religious or spiritual or supernatural you know, set of inspirations that, that drove him to kind of develop these theories about how this might be possible. You know, it's funny, like whenever I, I, I've, I you know, I've, it's been cool to be able to go around to different places and give talks about my book since it's come out. Uh, but, you know, whenever I talk about this stuff specifically <laughs> uh, and about done, I always get people raising yeah. their hands or coming up to me afterwards. I always do. Yep. And they say, I had this experience, you know, where <laughs> I had this dream and, um, you know, it was my father who came to me and said, um, you know, I love you and, um, you know, I'm still with you and et cetera. And the next day I got up and it turned out he had died, you know, and, you know, just dreams that were, um, 
you know, inexplicable in various ways. Or people come up to me and say, I had this dream and it was super vivid, you know, and I wrote it down and, and then it happened like two days later and it was exactly the same. And so, uh, yeah, I, I have all of these, you know, people sharing these very cool stories with me. So it's kind of, kind of neat. Yeah. Well, they see you as a person that can, that w- will listen to this story and not give you a funny look or whatever. I mean, almost right. everybody right. I have on this show has the same thing. It's happened to me where somebody yeah. realizes that maybe this is the person that, you know, you've written a book. So, and you know, for you, you've got, yeah. you know, you're a professor, you've got a degree, you've got a doctorate. So, and you're talking about this crazy stuff. So I, I, I yeah. want to use the, uh, you know, I want to tell an authority figure. I'm, I'm not an authority figure, but um, yeah. somebody that yeah. has written something about it and does, yeah. and takes it seriously. I want you to take me seriously. And yeah. And do they, do any of them ask, ask you about an explanation or anything, or do they just say thank you and leave? Um, it's a little bit of both, you know, I mean, I think it's like you said, I think, you know, these, these kinds of experiences happen to people and they know that, um, people won't listen to them or take them seriously or, or they tell someone and, and they're not taken seriously. And so I think part of it is that they just wanted to tell somebody who might, who might believe them. Um, and so they do it, but, but some of them do ask about, you know, ways of, you know, how might you account for this? And, you know, the details of that are in my book, you know, I mean, yeah. well, at least the details of how some people Dealt with tried, to, tr- tried to deal with it, you know, and I think, I think Dunn, Dunn was, you know, an engineer and scientist at heart. I mean, I think, I think that was kind of his persona. And I think that he did believe that there would be a way of trying to understand or map it out, um, scientifically. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I do sometimes talk about Dunn's theories there and, and, you know, Dunn's, Dunn's book is still read today. And, you know, as you said a few minutes ago, his ideas are definitely taken up by Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and H.G. Wells and, you know, a number of other people. And, um, you know, in the interwar period between the, the world wars in, in the UK, there, what there developed a whole sort of culture of dreaming. And Dunn was a big part of that, a whole culture of sort of directed dreaming and prophetic dreaming and dream diaries. And so there was, and plays about dreaming, J.B. Priestley, um, J.B. Priestley was a really important 20th century British figure, um, a public figure, BBC radio broadcaster, and then a really prolific and very famous playwright and, um, writer of novels. So J.B. Priestley gets really interested in this. And J.B. Priestley is probably the most important, um, person who takes up Dunn's theories and higher dimensional theories. He, he's probably the most influential person because right, he, of the influence, he, because yeah. of the influence. I mean, and then he, he puts it into his plays and I, I talk about that and into his books and he, he gets on the BBC and talks about it. Right. And, um, and then he has, after he gets on the BBC in 19, I think 1963, and then he gets, um, thousands and thousands of letters from people. He, he I was just he about asked, to say that he's like, it's like Whitley yeah. Strieber says something and then all these <laughs> yeah. people are like, Oh my God, that's happened to me. <laughs> exactly. And so he got, you know, thousands of letters from people who had these experiences. And then he wrote an awesome book, um, which I encourage everyone to read. It's such a cool book. And he includes a number of letters in this book, but it's called Man and Time. It has that old time, old time title that's yeah. <laughs> not, not, not inclusive language there, Man and Time. But, um, but it's really a very cool book. And he was a smart guy, and he writes all about different theories of time. And then he, he talks a lot about Dunn and Hinton, and he talks about higher dimensions. And then he has a whole chapter in there where he, he quotes from all these letters that he got. And it's really, it's really a fascinating book. 
Yeah, I got it. I I when I'd only I'd heard about it, but I didn't know who Priestley was that much until I read your book. Like I said, um, the book is a really nice um, primer. Well, not even a primer, but just more like you yeah. you ought to look into these people more if you're <laughs> interested in this subject. Um, yeah, and then he and then Priestley, as you said, influenced um, television too. Because people yeah. were reading his books and seeing his plays, and then they, and then people like Rod Serling and and uh, what's his name, um, uh, not Stefano, who was who produced the Outer Limits, Leslie, Leslie, Leslie Stevens, Stevens. Yeah. yeah, they went on yeah. to produce you know TV shows and write TV shows that dealt with these themes, um, yeah, even more and made people think about these things more and and probably also jumpstart a lot of people's imaginations and dream lives and everything, um. Yeah, to to a degree absolutely. that had never been seen before. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, Dunn knew H.G. Wells personally, so they they had a personal connection actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and when Dunn wrote his book about his precognitive or um, prophetic dreams, Dunn H.G. Uh, he gave a copy of H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells read it, and H.G. Wells wrote a really positive review of it, and so it. H.G. Wells is sort of responsible for making it um, really known because H.G. Wells was famous by that time. So, yeah, he's very respected, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. So then he wrote a really positive review. You know, actually, over time, though, H.G. Wells kind of got um, – he kind of he kind of got jaded. I mean, he, I mean, I think he did some dream journaling. He, he kind of got tired of uh, Dunn kind of talking on and on about precognitive <laughs> dreams. <laughs> he did. He did. And they had a kind of like a falling out. So like later, later on, you know, uh, you know, H.G. Wells wrote more negatively about um, Dunn's books because he wrote, then he continued to write, Dunn continued to write books about uh, dreams. But nevertheless, when you read Wells's books, and I talk about this in my book, but, you know, Wells's books, he's got a lot of characters who um, have prophetic dreams or, and he has a lot of dreams um, in his books that are sort of plot devices or, or that, or that are really important. And Wells, in his own life, um, you know, biographers of Wells talk about how important dreams were to Wells. Um, you know, Wells is interesting to think about in terms of religion. I mean, he he kind of did away with his Christianity; he wasn't really too interested in Christianity anymore. But he he believed that there was there was truth, and he believed that there was meaning um, to life, and he believed that his dreams would help him find out what the meaning was in his life. So for his whole life, he was very connected to dreams. Um, and, and then Tol- and then going forward with others, I mean, Tolkien was that way as well. Um, Tolkien, um, you know, dreams were really important to Tolkien and Dunn dreams, you know, these kind of prophetic dreams figure um, in several of Tolkien's books right. um, too. Uh, and, and Tolkien actually had a really powerful dream life where he, he believed that dreams in some sense were also revelatory you know, just like Dunn did, um, although Tolkien Tolkien was much more Christian identified, right? Um, right. Than than Dunn was, and he remained that way. But but Tolkien is fascinating for so many reasons, and he's so influential on <clears throat> on fiction, on fantasy, on sci-fi, um, books, television, films. I mean, so, there's so much that he's influential on. Anybody who writes about um, fantastic fantastic other worlds, you know, in science fiction, other worlds, and the imaginative power of these other worlds. And Tolkien really believed in that and wrote, wrote about that. And, and so did C.S. Lewis, actually, who I talk about um, as well. And right. C.S. Lewis took up these ideas about higher dimensions. Um, but yeah, bo- both Lewis and Tolkien believed that, you know, by, 
by imaginatively immersing yourself in fictional other worlds, you were kind of preparing the imagination for um, what we say for for Christian for for um, for what we say in for Christian the Christian imagination, right? You yeah. by it was sort of a way of creating a more a robust and a stronger imagination, and that it would lead you gradually to embrace imaginatively the the Christian myth and the Christian message. I was just being quiet here because there's sirens. Oh yeah, I can hear that. Um, you don't know this about my show, but there's an old long-standing joke of people that listen to my show that there have to be sirens during the show <laughs> because I used, <laughs> I used to do this from an internet station, um, at a very busy intersection in Los Angeles where there were constantly sirens going by. So people used to <laughs> well, start making, yeah, yeah, they start making bets about how long into the show there is going to actually be sirens near the end of the book. One of the last chapters you get more in the present time, you talk about television and its inception yeah. and how people felt about it. When it came on the market, everybody could buy it, or at least people even yeah. just heard about it. And because yeah. it kind of, they looked at it as kind of a mystical device because it was almost literally a remote viewing device. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. In the 19, in the 1950s, when, you know, a lot of people in America get a television, right? That's really the decade when, when people get the television. I mean, in 1950, not too many Americans had a television in their home, but by 1960, just about you know, 90% of American um, households have a television. So uh, the 50s is a big, is a big moment of change um, in American media culture, right, where people bring this <laughs> magical box that somehow materializes invisible transmissions, right, yeah. into, into their intimate spaces of their living rooms. Um, and you can suddenly, it, it's, it's like you say, it is a remote viewing box, you know, that you can, you can see all kinds of things. Um, so it, it had a kind of a mystical resonance for people. And yeah, I, I quote a lot of, you know, I have different, <laughs> different funny anecdotes in there about people, you know, turning off their television and, you know, being seeing afraid of their television and, yeah. or, or exactly seeing faces or having, you know, the faces of sort of dead loved ones appear on their televisions. And you have a lot of stories about that, you know, short stories or, or even horror stories. You still have those types of stories out there, um, about the uncanny television, right? Yeah. Um, like poltergeist for instance, this mm -hmm. film. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, great example. Um, but there are many others, um, sort of, you know, what, what exactly does the TV tune in? You know, what, what exactly are these transmissions? Are they, are they electrical or are they electro spiritual or is there some kind of, um, conflation of the electrical and spiritual? I mean, heck, I mean, they're, they're both invisible forces, you know, maybe, maybe they're somehow linked. Um, you know, and so I, yeah, in the TV chapter, I talk quite a bit about that. And then, and then it adds to the whole mystique and the power of the, of these, of the television to have kind of sci-fi and genre TV like Twilight Zone or Outer Limits where you have, where you actually depict televisions in fictional shows, you know, tuning in, um, yeah. off world, off world intelligences, whether they're yeah. ghostly intelligences or alien intelligences yeah. or whatever or it's a time machine and you're watching dinosaurs or whatever the hell it was it, yeah exactly um yes actually yeah, the chapter exactly. of that title was one step beyond which was a another one of these shows that did yeah. most people don't know of right now but it did basically the same stuff that uh outer limits and um um yeah twilight zone did the yeah and i don't know if you wrote about this because i don't remember seeing it in the book did you know that yeah. One Step Beyond actually did one of their shows in Mexico? 
They, oh. they flew down there in 1960 or 61 after yeah. reading Gordon Wasson's book, or maybe uh, who was the guy that worked with Geller? Now, Puharik. He wrote oh, a book called okay. The Magic Mushroom. They flew okay. down to Mexico and they went and saw a shaman, I think huh. maybe Maria Sabina. They got mushrooms from her, and then the host went back to L.A. to to uh, a, a, a to a lab or a stage, a sound stage, and Puharik fed him mushrooms, and they did psychic tests with it on camera. Wow, that's that's cool. I'd like to I'd like to have a reference for that. Maybe you could email me that in more information on that. That's, I will. That's it's fascinating. A, if you look up one step beyond the magic mushroom on on YouTube, the whole thing's there. yeah. Wow. Okay, that's fascinating. Yeah. So they not only I mean, talked about uh, transcendent states and time, you know, uh, experiments with time and all that. They actually did it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. And I think in that in that one chapter towards the end of my book on TV, I talk about the psychedelic movement. And you know, I mean, actually, all along, even before magic mushrooms and the psychedelic movement, you have people speculating and saying things like, "Well." You know, we have our three spatial dimensions of length, width, and height, you know, but, you know, then let's say there's this fourth direction or fourth dimension. Um, you know, what direction is that? And, you know, the answer for some people was it goes inward. You know, it's, it's sort of like consciousness. Um, so, you know, when, when you have the psychedelic movement, you know, you have people actually saying that these, you know, these mushrooms and other drugs are technologies that you can use to actually achieve a higher dimensional vision. And they would, they would use that language, you know, that language that I talk about a lot in the book, that higher dimensional language. This is like, you know, I'm like, a, I'm, I've become like a higher dimensional television set, set that, you know, tunes in or that receives these kind of messages from, from the beyond. So they, they would use this the same kind of language. The language we use to describe some of these uh, states uh, seems to change. I mean, this is yeah. uh, this has been noticed by everybody, but it seems to change with technology. So you know, people are saying they're having a you know a quantum experience, or um, yeah. this is an alternate you know this is an altered dimension or a different you know this this relates to string theory. I'm on a different string of the you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So they they use they try to use uh, the latest um, or what they see as the latest scientific language to describe what they're doing, and this is still going on. Yeah, um, yeah. Hinton and Ospensky and all these people they're still with us. Um, yeah. What do you think will happen? You know, as as science changes, is this just going to keep going and going and going, or do you think they'll they'll uh, merge? Sort of as where we started out with, uh, you know, the Middle Ages up into maybe the Enlightenment. I mean, these things were yeah. actually, I, I, I see them as actually merged at the time and then broke into two distinct. I kind of see that merging again in a certain way. Um, what yeah. do you think? Yeah. Um, well, I kind of see it um, as always merged already. You know, I mean, I think that. Okay. I, think I that, mean, I mean, in the popular mind, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean. I think that when you when you get beyond the the common narratives about the quote unquote you know conflict between science and religion, it is it is kind of merged in people's minds. I think that I think that people are both scientific in their thinking and, and religious or spiritual in their thinking um, all the time. And you know, on any given day, I think people probably you know have metaphysical 
um, and ultimate questions that they carry with them every day mm-hmm. and uh, that are hard to shake. And, and, but they also have scientific ways of, of thinking and reasoning. And so I think that they, that they are kind of braided together always. And, um, you know, I try to think of my work as trying to figure out, you know, how that, how that works and, and why that is. So, yeah, I mean, I think that certainly, you know, when you think about how scientists talk about science, you know, I think that the way, ways that scientists talk about science today is very much um, as a secular discipline that really has nothing to do with religion and is, is maybe even the opposite for some of them about religion um, and spirituality. So I, I think that that will probably continue. I think that scientists will continue to you know, demarcate kind of what they do from what other people are doing. Um, you know, I think that maybe one footnote to that, though, is popular science. You know, I think um, when scientists write popular science, then I think the the ground shifts a little bit and mm. the distinctions that they're trying to make between what scientists do um, and what other kinds of people do, the distinctions fall away a little bit. And in some ways, I guess I would say that's kind of their own fault. I mean, especially when you look at, you know, modern physics, you look at Brian Greene or you look at Michio Kaku or you look at, um, you know, all of these big, you know, physicists who write these popular books. I mean, I got to say that, you know, when you read these books, you know, they they really do sound uh, fantastic. They're full of fantastic ideas about the multiverse and about other dimensions and uh, the many worlds theory of quantum mechanics. And, um, you know, these are really unbelievable, you know, fantastic speculations. And I think that in the realm of popular science publishing, scientists are invested in making these kinds of ideas and speculations exciting. Yeah. Um, and you see that to speculate because they're not constricted by some peer review or whatever. They're just trying to popularize it. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. But I think that, you know, that those acts of popularizing it really do bring these concepts to to other to to not other kinds of folks, to non-scientists. And they they really, you know, they create a kind of an aura of mysticism and um, and fantasy and wonder around these ideas that, that these scientists are doing really to sell books. You know, they're doing it to sell books and to sell the public on the importance of their science, right? So I, I get why they're doing it. But I think for them, one of the un, unintended consequences may, may be that, you know, by making these concepts seem so wild and crazy and fantastic, um, which, which they are, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're also contributing to um, the, an efflorescence of new metaphysical and spiritual, uh, ideas, right. In in the public. So, you know, I think you can hardly blame the public for embracing, you (laughs) know, really, really, right. You can hardly blame the public for, you know, read Brian Greene's books about, you know, the, uh, hit the quote unquote hidden realities and the multiverse theory and the fabric of the cosmos and other dimensions. And, you know, you can hardly blame the public, I think, for, for saying, you know what, look, I mean, if these physicists are talking about the possibility that there are other universes and other dimensions and other layers to reality that we can't see, how fantastic is my idea that there, that there might be a heaven when I die? Yeah. You know? It fits right in. <laughs> it fits right in. And this so, smart yeah. scientist guy with a huge IQ is telling me it does. <laughs> yeah, well, that's certainly what, right. I and mean, that's, I think, certainly out in culture today. 
at one point yeah. uh, I heard you say this. You said, and this goes into you know how much do you invest in what you've written about and what do you think about higher dimensions. But you said um, perhaps higher dimensional beings can reach into your body without even breaking your skin. I think you did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So hey, what did, did you mean by? Yeah. Uh, no, but you said it. I think in a in a conversation or something like that. And yeah. I remembered this because yeah. I wrote it down. Yeah. Um, so does that mean? You have a, an idea that there are higher dimensions, as these people describe throughout your book, throughout history. And if that's true, um, what did you mean by higher dimensional beings can reach into your body without breaking your skin? It, it sounds like it's in yeah. a flatland kind of way. It is. That's exactly what it is. I mean, and we could return to flatland just to think about that for a second. But yeah. that's right. I mean, you know, when you're when you're if you're like that flat two dimensional square in flatland, and you're suddenly pulled up into three dimensional space. Not only can you look down and see everything in your world that you couldn't see before, but you could also take your finger if you had one at that point, <laughs> and you could you could reach down and press into the center of, let's say, a triangle, and you would be touching the inside of a person's body without without disturbing their outer skin, if that makes sense, because the outer skin of the triangle will be like the lines of the triangle, okay, mm-hmm. and then inside of the lines of the triangle. Um, is the insides of that little creature, that two-dimensional creature. And if you're in that higher-dimensional space, you can do exactly that. You can reach down and you can touch the insides of a person without disturbing their outer skin. So people people do use this idea to say that, yeah, I mean, if there were higher-dimensional creatures, they could do that. You know, they could, they could reach into or somehow they could communicate in, uh, with, with a human being um, with the inside of the human being, possibly their brain or consciousness, right, without disturbing the outside. See, right now, everybody that's listening to this show that uh, is saying is uh, starting to jump. Thinking about, about UFOs, about about UFOs, aliens, and cattle <laughs> mutilations. Yeah, exactly. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Well, who knows? That's right. Yeah. Um, right. And the, these ideas, these higher dimensional ideas, are used for, um, you know, in those contexts too. I mean, you know, to talk about you know, UFOs and aliens about as higher dimensional visitors and, and so on and so forth. So that's right. The, you know, these ideas are used in those ways um, too. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I heard a little bit in your question of, of a, uh, um, you know, I heard a, a bit in your question about a more personal dimension. So let me, let me address yes. that. I mean, I, I do think, you know, I, I don't know exactly. You're I mean, very I careful of, in the book to be academic about it, but I just wanted yeah. to ask you about your personal feeling about it, if that's yeah. okay. I mean, what I, I think what I would say is that I definitely think that there's more to the world than meets the eye, <laughs> you know, so. Okay, that's, uh, that, yeah, you know, that's, that's totally fair, and most people yeah. agree with you. Yeah, I mean, so I, I would tend to be sympathetic to, you know, ideas about, uh, you know, UFOs or higher dimensions or the multiverse or, you know, I, I think that these ideas are becoming more and more plausible, right, as, you know, A, more and more people have different kinds of experiences, and B, as science, scientific ideas, at least ideas in physics, become more and more authentic, right, and incorporating kind of ideas about invisible spaces, invisible layers, invisible dimensions. So, so yeah, so I, I you know, I definitely, I'm not one of these people who has a closed mind um, and, and will insist that, you know, that the material world is all we have. In fact, you know, I, I don't think that's the case. I think that there, there are other parts or I guess I would say dimensions. <laughs> other, <laughs> other, <laughs> that's a hard word to use. You got to use that carefully. Um, yeah. I, you know, I think that there are other realms, other spaces, 
I think there are spiritual realities that are, um, that are real, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I tend to, I tend to believe those kinds of things and I tend to believe, you know, those narratives when people tell me those narratives. And as I said earlier, I now, nowadays I have people coming up to me and and telling me these kinds of, (laughs) telling me these kinds of things all the time. So, yeah. Well, Chris, uh, Thanks so much. I, this is uh, I, I got to about three quarters of my questions, which is great. And, That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. thank you. It was a great conversation. I appreciate you getting the book and, and uh, having me on the show. Well, we should do it again sometime, either when another book comes out or just to sit down and BS for a Absolutely. while, because sometimes I have guests on again and we don't even talk about their book. We just talk about stuff. <laughs> Anytime. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Anytime. Every guest gets to pick the music that goes at the end of the show. What would you like? Oh boy. Mm. And you can take about, as long as you like. How about how about journeys? Don't stop believing. Okay. That seems, appro- <laughs> that seems appropriate. I'll put that in. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks, Chris. Okay. Thanks, Greg. Take care. Talk Bye to too. you soon. All right. Okay. Bye. Bye. Share the 